Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Joshua chapter 23. Joshua chapter 23, hear now the word of our God. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am going about to go the way of all the earth and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, So the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. This is the word of the Lord. We have come now to the conclusion of the book of Joshua, these final two chapters, Joshua 23 and 24. If we recall that uh, the book of Joshua began after the death of Moses, and when Joshua was commissioned by God to lead the people in the land, and how God had told Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Now here we are at the end of the story. As we're coming up to the death of Joshua next week, God has fulfilled all that he had promised. We heard in chapters 1 through 5 of of the crossing of the Jordan River, how God brought his people into the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In chapters 6 to 12, we heard of the conquest of the land, how God went before Israel, how God sent Joshua how God sent one whose name would later be chosen for the name of Jesus, and how he delivered their enemies into his hands, how Joshua caused Israel to inherit. That was why we had heard at the very beginning, be strong and courageous. It's not that Joshua was a weak and timid guy. 
It was that Israel knew that their inheritance depends upon Joshua's faithfulness. If Joshua is, is not faithful, Israel will not inherit. Of course, for us, if Jesus was not faithful, we would not inherit. Our inheritance depends not upon ourselves, but upon Jesus. Well, that was what God was teaching Israel. Your inheritance does not depend upon you. Your inheritance depends upon Joshua. And we saw in, in chapters 13 to 21, the division of the inheritance, how God gave to each tribe an inheritance in the land. And as we went through, we saw that it's not as though they've actually conquered everyone. The initial strike took down the big main opponents and put it in a, in a place where each tribe can now go and take possession of the land. But that's going to require faithfulness on Israel's part. You see... It's not that your inheritance depends upon you. No, Jesus is the one that provides your inheritance. But you're still called to be faithful and to take possession, to, be, to go out and do what God calls you to do. That sort of, this is one of, those, one of those things in Scripture that's very clear everywhere you look. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's the one who saves. And yet, you are responsible to live as the saved people of God. And if you don't, then you're not. <laughs> it's one of those, you know, Fra Francis Turretin once referred to good works as, as the necessary subsequent conditions for justification. You're like, wait a second, good works are necessary for justification? Oh yes, as necessary subsequent conditions. If you don't have good works, well then you're not justified. Wait, what? Yeah, well, that's what James says. The one who, is, who says, I have faith but doesn't have works. James is like, <laughs> can that faith save him? No. Paul agrees with that entirely because Paul, Paul's, Paul talks regularly about that. The, uh, that and so I lost the phrase. But um, in Galatians, when, when Paul's talking about the same thing, it's the faith working by love. I knew it would come if I kept talking. Uh, faith working by love is the same thing that James is talking about because faith working by love, if you believe God, then you'll do those good works created in Christ Jesus for you to do. And that's what, and that's really what, what God was showing Israel back in the book of Joshua. That Joshua is the one who causes you to inherit. You don't inherit the land because of how good you are. You don't inherit the land because of how faithful you were. You don't inherit the land because Israel is this wonderful, powerful, mighty nation. You inherit the land because of Joshua. And now Joshua says, now go take possession of the land and live faithfully before God. Live the way God is. The law, as, 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 when you look at the book of Deuteronomy... Moses, the man of the law, will never enter the land. The law can't get you into the land. That was never the purpose of the law. The law tells you how to live in the land. The law tells you how to live as the people of God. But how do you get there? You only get there by grace. You only get there by God working salvation in the hearts of his people. So Joshua ends now with these two gatherings in Joshua 23 and 24. And, and we'll see how th these, these gatherings are related. First, Joshua summons the elders and judges of Israel. In verse 2, we're, we're told that, that Joshua summoned all Israel. And so you're like, and at first you might think, oh, that means all the people? Well, 
representatively, he summons all Israel. He summons the elders and heads, the judges and officers, basically the leaders of all Israel. And we're told that this happened a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. We hear in the next chapter that Joshua dies at the age of 110. If you think back, he was probably in his 30s or 40s during the Exodus, and uh, he, was, he, he was already a commander in the army by Exodus 18 when, when they first arrive at Mount Sinai. So he's... 40 years later, at the conquest, he would have been in the 70s or 80s. And we saw that the conquest takes five years or so. So he would have been, you know, probably about 80 or so by the time, of, by the, by the time he sort of sent everybody out. So, and he dies about 25 years later. So this would be sometime in the 15, 20 years after the conquest. And he speaks to a generation of elders. And if you think about who's he talking to, these are the ones who maybe were born in Egypt or in the wilderness, and now they're, they're, they're older. They grew up in the wilderness watching the rebellion of their fathers. They spent their manhood following Joshua. They were the warriors in the conquest. They saw God's faithfulness to Joshua, watching Joshua be strong and courageous so that Joshua might cause Israel to inherit the land. These were the elders who had gone with Joshua, who had been the leaders, who had led Israel in following Jesus. There's a way in which you could see parallels between Jesus and his disciples, Joshua and his elders. And I think the, the Gospel of Luke in particular and the book of Acts wants us to think that way. But Joshua highlights these points in verses 3 and 4. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Joshua was the instrument of God. He was the covenant mediator through whom Israel inherits the land. But he understands he is not the one who fought for Israel. God himself is the one who delivered the nations into Israel's hand. The Lord has gone before you. The Lord has fought for you. Joshua is the one through whom Israel inherits the land. Verse 4, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West. Joshua makes clear the work is not finished. He is the one who begins to cut off the nations, but there are more nations to be cut off. In a very real sense, you could say Joshua is the Old Testament version of the Gospel of Luke, and Judges is the Old Testament version of the book of Acts. Luke Acts, Joshua Judges. Joshua is the Jesus who causes us to inherit the land, and the apostles are the judges who are filled with the Spirit to establish the kingdom of God. Now, you may never have thought of Joshua and Judges in this way, I don't blame you because the judges are such catastrophic failures, whereas the apostles faithfully bear witness to Jesus. But the 12 apostles are appointed as the New Testament equivalent, as it were, of the 12 tribes. The same Holy Spirit that came upon the judges comes upon the apostles. And indeed, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon all God's people. 
And if you recall, Moses had at one point earlier back in the book of Numbers that said, oh, if only the Holy Spirit would come on all God's people, that all God's people would be prophets. And that's precisely what happens at the day of Pentecost. But here at the end of Joshua, you certainly see Joshua as a shadow and type of Christ. And Joshua is speaking to the elders and judges because they are the ones who must now lead Israel. There's a a leadership transition here, just like there had been back at the end of Deuteronomy. At the end of Deuteronomy, the, the transition was from Moses to Joshua. Now, it's not that Joshua hands over the mantle to one man, but to the ordinary rulers of the people. In the similar manner, Jesus will appoint the apostles, who will hand over their mantle not to one, but to all the elders of the church. And Joshua reminds the elders of their motivation for faithful leadership. Sort of, what is it to lead the people of God? Well, remember that the Lord will do what he has promised, verse 5. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Notice how there's an indicative that precedes the imperative. Uh, the indicative statement in, in grammar, is, is the indicative is a statement. It's a, it's a statement of fact. The imperative is a command. Here's what you're to do. So before he gets to the imperative, he starts with the indicative. It's the same thing that, that God did in the Ten Commandments, where the opening statement of the Ten Commandments is not a command. It's, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The Ten Commandments are rooted in the indicative of salvation, the indicative of what God has done to save you. Therefore, keep my commandments. And in verse 5, we have a future indicative. The Lord will continue to do what he has promised. The Lord will push back your enemies. You shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Joshua is saying to them, and through them, he's saying to you, You can trust God. He will do what he has promised. He will be faithful. And because God will go before you, because God will destroy your enemies, therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. As Moses had spoken to him, so now Joshua speaks to the elders of Israel. Be strong, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Pay attention to what God has told you to do. What has God told you to do? Well, love your neighbor as yourself. How, how do I love my neighbor? Well, honor your father and your mother. It doesn't just mean obey them, but honor them. Do not kill. Do not harm others. In your anger, do not lash out. Do not steal, but look for ways that you can support and encourage others. Be diligent in your use of time and resources. Do not commit adultery. Do not seek your own selfish gratification, but seek to love others in the way that you speak, in the way that you look, in the way that you act. Do not bear false witness, but speak the truth in love. Use your words to build each other up not tear each other down. Do not covet. I mean, in one sense, the 10th commandment brings all the others back around and focuses on the heart, not just your outward behavior. But notice that's not where Joshua starts. Joshua doesn't start with the one another's because our love for our neighbor 
must always be rooted in our love for God. After all, we are not very good at loving our neighbor. In fact, we are profoundly bad at loving our neighbor. Why are we so bad at loving our neighbor? Well, why should I love my neighbor? He doesn't love me very much. I mean, if my neighbor doesn't really look out for my best interests, why should I look out for his? Why should I look out for my neighbor when he's just going to stab me in the back? This is why this is why Joshua does not start with the command to love your neighbor because our neighbors aren't very trustworthy and reliable. And neither are we. Where does Joshua start this? What is your motivation for obedience? The Lord your God will do what he has promised. In the same way, your obedience starts with loving God because he has loved us first. Notice how verses 7 through 11 emphasize the importance of the first commandment, that we love the Lord our God. Verse 7, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Cling to the Lord. Hold fast to him. It's the same word that Adam used in Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That two becoming one flesh, this is what Joshua is now saying about clinging to the Lord your God. Moses had used the same word in Deuteronomy 13 and again in Deuteronomy 30 when he said that you may obey the Lord and that you may cleave to him for he is your life. And this is where in each of these passages, in both in Deuteronomy and now in Joshua, Joshua's remembering what Moses had told him and now he's saying the same thing. Don't, don't mix with the nations Israel is to be separate from the nations. They are the holy people of God. They must not serve other gods, but they must cling to the Lord your God. And the picture is often used in the Old Testament, blending the images of marriage and worship. Cleaving to the Lord your God versus cleaving to other gods. Will you be devoted to the Lord or will you be devoted to some other God? Now, we live in a culture that doesn't particularly cling to the Lord. But... Sometimes it's really hard to know sort of like where's the idolatry in our culture because it's not like they're worshiping Baal. I mean, if you not too many, I suppose there probably are some Baal worshipers out there nowadays, but, but who are people actually worshiping? I mean, our, in our culture, it tends to be, oh, we don't need any sort of deity, but what do they put in the place of God? For many, it's worshiping their own pleasure seeking their own happiness. But when you turn pleasure into your God, pleasure doesn't satisfy. The quest for happiness ends in misery. Likewise, some people, some people want power, control. They want to sort of be in, in charge. But when you turn power into your God, when you always try to be in control of the situation, you don't actually obtain mastery. The, the quest for power ends in slavery. That's how idolatry works. I read an essay this week on on gentle parenting, the idea that 
parents should never use the phrase, because I told you so. The, you know, you've, you've probably encountered this where, oh, always make sure that you explain everything very gently and reasonably and sort of be, a, appeal to their sort of a child's sort of better nature. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in that. But there's a problem. And actually, this author seemed to realize it because the author suggested that so far the beginning results of people who grew up under this is that many of the children who grew up under gentle parenting now blame their parents for never sort of telling them, you know, life's actually really hard and you're going to have to learn how to deal with people who aren't easy to get along with. And so the author was actually saying, uh, it looks like gentle parenting is going to wind up with every other form of parenting with traumatized children who blame their parents for all their miseries. Once again, it's one of those, here we go again. Every time we try to fix the problem, we see that ah, the, older, the previous generation was too severe. Okay, so we'll be gentle. And then this generation is too gentle. Oh, so how do you, you can start to see the problem. But this is how idolatry works. Parents expect to find joy and happiness from their children. Children expect to find joy and happiness from their parents. Everybody expects everybody else to be thinking about my happiness. But why should they be thinking about my happiness? And meanwhile, we ignore the God who made us for himself. We ignore the God who delivered us and set us free and made us his own. And that's why Joshua says in verse 9, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts a, a thousand to flight, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Now, as we've heard, okay, Joshua's already chastised seven tribes. Why haven't you taken possession of the land that God gave you? So, God has done what he promised. God has, he's, he's delivered you and he's from Egypt. He's brought you into the land. When you go up to battle against your enemies, they've run away from you. But Israel hasn't done what God called them to do in taking possession. It's worth noting that we are profoundly bad at doing the things that God has called us to do. Our forefathers were the same way. God gave them, he gave them these mighty signs. He gave them, he went before them. He fought their enemies. But did they believe him and continue walking? No. And so what God is doing in this is teaching us that we need to pay attention to what the Lord has called us to do. God wants his people to remember his mighty deeds and teach them to our children and therefore, he says, verse 11, be very careful to love the Lord your God. How are they supposed to love God? You love God by being a distinctive people, by being a people different from the nations who live according to his laws. And he says particularly not to intermarry with the nations. If you turn back and cling, the same word cling that we saw earlier, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, well, that's what's going to lead to trouble. 
those who worship Yahweh have no business intermarrying with those who worship other gods. Now, obviously, if, if the nations convert to Yahweh, they become Israelites. Rahab, great classic example. She may be a Canaanite, but she believed in the Lord, and so she was joined to God's people. As we saw last time, Phineas admitted in chapter 22, verse 17, that Israel had not cleansed itself entirely from the sin of Peor, which was the sin of intermarriage. It's a problem that will continue throughout Israel's history. Samson will fall in love with a Philistine woman. Solomon will marry an Egyptian princess. Israel will marry idolaters and start slipping and sliding into their ways. And that's why Joshua warns in verse 13, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. If you refuse to worship the Lord, if you turn aside to other gods, you will perish. But notice how you will perish. Again, God's justice is a poetic justice. If you want to live with the surrounding nations, if you want to be like them, then God will let you be like them. He will give you what you ask for. But remember, those nations are under God's curse. They are going to be destroyed. You want to be like them? Okay. You can be like them. And you can have what you want. Do you really want what you think you want? This is, this is something that we need to pay attention to because in our day, what is it that you want in your life? What is it that you want? Because if what you want is, oh, I want, oftentimes we want good things. I want to get married. I want to have a family. Well, that's a, that's a good thing. But oftentimes it can become the idol, sort of the, ah, everything in my life is now fixated on, I must get married, I must have a family. Or we can, as parents, we can, I want my children to, be, to grow up to be faithful, godly Christians. How could you object to that? Can that become an idol? Oh, oh yeah. And we are so good at taking the good things and making them all you know, the thing that we care about. It's the same problem we saw this morning. Do not be anxious about all these things. But rather, rather seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you are following God, if you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, then you will not fall prey to the snare of the culture. And in verse 14, Joshua reiterates that, that his time has come. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. God has done what he promised. This is a good thing. It is a blessing. But like all blessings, like all good things, there's a warning included. Joshua speaks of the blessings of the covenant, but he also warns of the curses. Israel, Israel's faithfulness has, has brought, because they followed Joshua, because they have done what God said, they have now received the inheritance. Not one good word has failed, but, and their, you know, their enemies have fled before them. They have received the bounty of the Lord. 
But Joshua warns that disobedience will result in God bringing destruction, the evil things. Just as all the good things, verse 15, that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. You might... You might wonder, but wait, but wait, what would happen to God's promises? God will accomplish his promises. He will fulfill what he has said. It may come about in an unexpected way. <laughs> it may, I mean, if you, you can see so many things that happen in Israel's history where if Israel had done what God said, God, God said, if you do this, I will bless you. If you don't, destruction will come. God's purpose was ultimately to bring all of this to pass in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, I mean, ultimately Israel keeps failing because, well, this is part of what God is teaching us about ourselves. In ourselves, we're not very good at this. But God has promised that he will make this come to pass, that Israel will keep failing. You know, Israel fails. The book of Judges reveals that really clearly. Okay, maybe a king will succeed where Israel failed. Uh, you know, David was great, but, well, sort of. Uh, <laughs> but this is the pattern that we keep seeing in the scriptures. If it's all up to, if it's up to us, it's not going to end well. But God, and God warns through Joshua in verse 16, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. We would do well to heed Joshua's warning. Because God has given our Lord Jesus great success. And he has triumphed over his enemies and our enemies. And entered his rest. And he has called us to live as a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. And in the same way that Joshua starts with, with the, the elders and judges, uh, this morning I, I met with the, the new deacon nominees as we started talking about training. And there's a way in which the, the leaders of the church are called to set the, set the tone, set the path, set the example for the rest of the church. And if we turn away from the gospel, if we forget what God has promised, if we do not hold fast to Jesus, then we will be destroyed. I mean, and that's, not just way back then. A hundred years ago, there were seven Presbyterian churches in St. Joe County. When I came to Notre Dame 25 years ago, there were still six. Now there are three. Only one of which has much any life left in it, and that life is somewhat questionable. In a hundred years... PCUSA, Presbyterian Church in the USA, has disintegrated in this region. There's not much of anything left of it. They forgot the heart and soul of the gospel. Now, okay, there's some encouraging news. 29 years ago, MCPC started. And today, there are now five solid Reformed churches in St. Joe County. And two more in Elkhart County. I mean, so there's, it's encouraging to see that, okay, sure, there was, a, there was an apostasy. There was a complete catastrophe in the Presbyterian Church. 
But we need to take heed because if we allow the spirit of the age to take over the church, if we just follow the path of the culture, then we'll join the same pattern. And it's not just that conservatism is the answer. Uh, Conservatism simply conserves whatever is the status quo. I mean, sort of, there's not a sort of, it's not just conserving isn't much. A wise man once said that tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. There's a way in which what we need is the tradition of the church. I would only add that those who have died in Christ are not truly dead. The faith of the church is the living faith of the living from all generations. But as we, as we walk before him, we need to draw not just on sort of, not just conserving what we, we presently have, but living in the faith of the church. Because if, when you look at the, the big picture, what the gospel has done in the last 2,000 years is astounding. What the gospel has done in the last 2,000 years is amazing. What the Holy Spirit continues to do is remarkable. And what we need to do is continue to hold fast to the faith once delivered to all the saints, that faith that the apostles preached and that the, the church has held to. And as we live, as we die, as we believe in him, let us do so with confidence, knowing that all the promises that he has spoken will come to pass. I mean, it's worth, it's worth noting that a hundred years ago, those Presbyterian churches we're pretty decent when it comes to what was being taught in them from all that I've gathered. Pretty decent. We have to be careful to not just follow the path of the culture, but to hold fast to Jesus and call one another to hold fast. And when we see each other slipping, to say, hey, careful, that way is dangerous. Don't go there. And then walk together in the way of our Lord Jesus. So let us pray and ask him to help us do this. Father, have mercy on us because we, we very easily are like our fathers who forgot your ways and who did not remember your promises, but who turned aside and, and drifted from your path. Lord, have mercy. Help us to, to be concerned not simply to... Uh, just do what we're doing, continue what we're doing, but that we might be concerned to, to make disciples, to follow Jesus in, in bringing the salvation that he, has, that he has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Help us to live faithfully before you and not stray from your ways. May your word, may your covenant, may your promises continue to, to bear fruit in our lives and to bear fruit in 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 the way that we interact with those around us. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on those who are weak and frail. Have mercy on those who are suffering and afflicted in, in, in body and in, in mind. Lord, help us to, to, to know your, your ways and to trust your promises that when we are afflicted, when we are anxious, when we are depressed and discouraged, help us to, to draw near to you knowing that you alone are our rock, our fortress, and, and our strength. And may your wisdom shape us and mold us that we might, we might speak wisely and well. We might speak the truth in love to, 
to, to build up those who are, who are broken down and to encourage those who are, who are weak. May, may your word and your spirit continue the work that you have begun in us until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.